the strangest one I think I found was I was told about his proclivity for using Nivea of um, massaging, rubbing into his skin at all hours of the day and night um, Nivea ointments. And they would make him so slippery that at one point Sonia said to him something akin to, oh, Bill, you've got to stop it. You're slipping away from me because he would always just slip through her fingers. <laughs> That's biographer Patrick Mullins talking about a slippery Billy McMahon in every sense of the word. More from him in a moment. Hello, I'm Caroline Baum, and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about biography. In this episode, we focus on the heftiest book of the series, Tiberius with a Telephone, a whopping great 700 pages on a prime minister not only short in stature, but also the length of his leadership. The ambition of this biography is nothing short of breathtaking, especially for a first-timer who had considerable handicaps when it came to access to archives. As to his subject, William McMahon was born in 1908 and died in 1988. He was Prime Minister from just 1971 to 1972, a period of significant tumult leading up to Gough Whitlam's election. It was Whitlam who called McMahon Tiberius with a telephone. McMahon was the subject of ridicule and contempt from his own side, as well as the opposition. It was Menzies who referred to him as a contemptible little squirt. Mullins presents an even-handed, fair, impartial portrait of a man with a great deal of ambition and a strong work ethic who was let down by weakness of character. Of course, I started by asking him why the book is so bloody big. 700 pages on Billy McMahon. Why so many for such a short prime ministership and for a man often regarded as our worst prime minister? Great question. The first answer and part of it is that McMahon had a very long ministerial career. McMahon was a minister from 1951 until 1971, um, serving in some of the most important ministerial offices that you can hold. And in those offices, he exerted a pretty significant amount of influence. He held the Treasury, he held the Foreign Office, he was involved in Social Security and the Navy and the Air, Labor and National Service, Agriculture. So an, an enormous number of years spent in important posts. The second reason, though, and connected to his prime ministership, is that even though that time at the summit was short, there was a lot going on and a lot happened, and very little of it is understood. We tend in Australia to regard the pre-Whitlam days as a kind of dark ages where nothing really happened that was kind of shapeless, silly, and a bit hapless even as well. I didn't think that was entirely the case, and I thought that unpacking it properly and giving it the detail and attention that it deserved made for a clearer understanding of where Whitlam was coming from and what Whitlam was able to do afterward. When I was writing this book and I was considering the length of it, I did think at the time, oh, you know, maybe there's a problem here. Maybe a big book's not a good idea. And then I thought, ah, nah, fuck it. People can read a long book, you know, like a long book is something good. A good long book is something to sink into. You get the detail, you grapple with complexity, which is just what life is like. That's what we need to do. That's good. But then a couple of months after publication, I remember talking to this man at an event who just said to me, you know, he was kind of a harried business executive, I think, dressed in a suit. And he said, you know, I really wanted to read it. I love it. It looks so good. I've read all the reviews. It looks great. And then I just see the length and I think, ah, I can't do it. Can't do it. So that's kind of been salutary for me. Um, and I think with what I write, whatever I write maybe next, I will try to edit and be less prolix, I guess. 
I wanted to ask you about the pacing and the waiting of the book because he doesn't become Prime Minister McMahon until we're over halfway into the book. So you spend a lot of time getting us there. And then because his prime minister was very short, in fact, it's the last 200 pages, really 200 and something pages that deal with the prime ministership. Um, we're going to come to structure in a moment because the structure of your book is absolutely brilliant. And it's it's really the thing that, that makes it stand out in so many ways. But was there um, a concern that you had about how long it takes him to get there? No is the simple answer. <laughs> Uh, and the reason for that is simple, that there's a great example of a biography where the subject doesn't become, doesn't get to the top until like the fourth volume in the series, until four or five thousand pages in. And that, of course, is Robert Caro uh, and Lyndon Johnson, his immense biography of the US president. Um, Johnson doesn't become president until volume four. And so there's a long <laughs> period of waiting to, to get there. And there's something of a promise and a lure to get you to get you to read those pages. But there's also, I think, a far broader story there. And I think this, this is another thing I think about biography in the sense that what makes a subject worth writing about is not just the position or office they hold. You know, I didn't write about McMahon just because he was prime minister. That's a really crap reason, I think, to write a biography of somebody. What is a better way, there's a better reason to write. And I think for McMahon, my view was that his life even as he weaved through these lower ministerial offices, could illuminate a lot more about our politics and about our society that we didn't necessarily understand or know before then. Um, things like the kind of cosy clubs and the networks that you could draw on within politics in the 1950s and 1960s. To some extent, those networks and things have vanished, they've changed, but they're also still with us. And understanding them in the context of McMahon's career gives us a way to understand this country as well. The the structure that you've chosen for the book is that you alternate chapters about the memoir that McMahon never wrote, but which he intended to write, or the autobiography, and we'll come to the difference between those in a moment, with the actual events of his life. How soon in the process, how early on in the writing of this book, did you construct that architectural shape? It came about halfway through. It wasn't until about mid-2016, I think it was August, September, August 2016, when I went to see David Bowman, who was McMahon's ghostwriter and who worked on McMahon's autobiography with him. And that's when David gave me, I, w I went to David's home and he gave me this enormous box of papers, um, which, you know, I just felt like a smuggler when I was taking them home. I just thought I was going to get pulled <laughs> over by the cops or something. Um, but buried in the bottom of it was this diary. And that diary became the backbone for this, this structure, these interludes where Bowman is working on the autobiography and um, they're interspersed between the otherwise orthodox biographical narrative. As soon as I read that diary, I realised that this was a way to structure the book, that this was a way of coming at and understanding McMahon's career and understanding the gaps between the career as he saw it and the gaps as the career as it could be established in the record and was remembered by most other people. And it was a way, too, of solving some of the problems that I myself was encountering. This kind of point where McMahon would claim one thing, 10 different sources would claim another. And so you'd be, you know, ostensibly in this kind of claim, counterclaim, claim, counterclaim, this kind of exhaustive litany of, of truth and falsity. Bowman's work on the autobiography and the diary entries he had and some of the surrounding documents I was able to get access to 
and some of the other recollections I could obtain as well allowed me to kind of pull those out and, and suggest that you know, the past, as we understand it, is something made, it's something constructed, it's not something that's just kind of lying on the ground and picked up and plop, plonked in, um, that it's shaped according to different whims and different viewpoints, and it's full of gaps, and it's full of errors and places where your footing is really not quite so stable, and you might fall in the drink of historical error. So it was a way of kind of solving some problems, but it was also a way I immediately saw um, it has to be said, I immediately saw this, that this was a way of giving the book a narrative shape and a kind of dramatic shape that would be a bit different because I do think most biographies, sometimes they can be a bit too dutiful in their attention to chronology. You know, you go from the childhood, you go from the formative influences, you go into early career and so on and so forth. And sometimes that can get a bit boring. And this was a way of kind of creating a hook to drag the reader through the first chapter or two and pulling them into this career that's full of gaps, that's full of problems, that's got reputational issues and differences and so on. Um, and it also helped, I think, straight away to set aside the older man from the younger man. It kind of gave a way of saying, okay, Billy McMahon, as you remember him, you know, big ears, bald head, squeaky voice, liar, etc. Put that to one side. Let's take a look at the smaller, original, more real person, a deaf kid growing up in, in comfortable circumstances, but with a family that was, you know, gone to the winds, really. Um, so it was a way of kind of solving a structural problem and solving a, a methodological problem, but it was also a way of, of giving the book a hook and dragging the reader through in a way that I wanted them to, to understand the subject better. What's the distinction in your mind, because it becomes an important one for David Bowman, the ghostwriter that you've mentioned, between McMahon's intention of writing memoir versus the intention of writing autobiography? Mm, really good question as well. Um, I'm not so sure there is actually a clear-cut difference between them. My, my view is generally that autobiography is comprehensive. It goes from womb to tomb and that it is you know, well-researched and is footnoted and all the way through. That, that's a, an autobiography in my view. A memoir is something a bit different. It's more stylistically adventurous. It plays with time. It maybe goes, just takes maybe a slice. Uh, and it's usually countenanced and, and firmly couched as based on memory. It doesn't usually resort to other sources and external, external works. So you wrote this biography without access to the 70 boxes of his papers that are in the National Archives and without the cooperation of his family. Can you talk about how you get around that? I mean, it would drive me mad, the tantalising notion that there is information, so much information that you can't get to. How did you psych yourself up to think it was possible to get around that because i think when i started out i had some hopes of getting access of getting the family on board but that even as i got further into it it became pretty clear in my mind that even if the family met with me i wouldn't get access the the reason i think i was able to kind of continue in spite of not getting access well there, there are a couple of reasons actually one is that i think a book on mcmahon kind of had to be done you know he was 50 years from the prime ministership and 
the people who are around him are dying. They're dying left, mm-hmm. right, and centre. Three people who I interviewed in the course of this book died between that interview and it's coming out. You know, I hope it's not related. I hope that it wasn't my presence that kind of sent them into into the arms of God. But, you know, um, so on one hand, I think there was an immense trove of material that's rapidly disappearing. And whatever value a biography I could do without access to materials could offer, um, whatever work I could do would be valuable, at least in the respect of capturing those recollections and those ideas. The second thing related to that, though, is that I wasn't completely convinced that McMahon's personal archive, these two or three hundred boxes of papers that the National Library holds, would actually be that valuable in the sense that I don't know how accurate they would be, for one. Um, there is no way of knowing actually how much of them at the moment is publicly available material, you know, duplicates that could be found in the National Archives or um or, or other kinds of publicly available material. You know, I mean, I've got access, for example, there's a section of them that is available, and it's literally just a collection of clippings. It's like 20 boxes of clippings. And I remember going through it thinking, oh, this is dross, this is dross, oh, this is interesting. And it was, you know, an Arnold Palmer golf tutorial kind of clipped out. And I thought, why is that there? But anyway, um, yeah, so, so on one hand, you know, the stuff that's there it will be valuable, I'm sure, and if a future biographer who gets access to it will probably be able to come out with things that I couldn't get to. But, you know, the family having said no, I just thought, look, i just got to do what I can. You just, I don't want to say you have to persist because, God, that sounds like I'm absorbing a lesson from Billy, but um, you have to persist. You just have to keep going. Well, I want to come to the family in a moment, but there's a sort of further issue with what you can't have in terms of the archives, which reminds me of Jenny Hocking and the Palace Papers, which is this slight confusion that appears to exist between what can be defined as personal papers and what are official papers. I'm presuming that you were denied access to both kinds, but why is there such a muddle and such a kind of seeming grey area as to which category papers fall into? Well, it's worth saying I wasn't denied access to official papers, I was denied access to McMahon's personal papers, which are the National Library. And because they are at the National Library, they are under the control of the McMahon family. The material at the National Archives, however, is not under the control of the McMahon family, and it has to, they have to abide by certain rules and provisions. And I got access to everything that I wanted. Um, admittedly, some of the things that I did request access to, they were closed, and I requested access and even to this day, I'm still getting responses in saying, we've now reviewed that request and it's open. The National Archives has been horribly cut by funding and, and it's had all sorts of problems getting access to material. And so some material I wanted access to, I couldn't in time for the book. Um, so McMahon exploited this muddle. He deliberately took in everything that he possibly could from cabinet submissions to diplomatic cables to hand papers to aid memoirs and said, it's all mine, it's all personal papers. And this is how he was able to get so many boxes and stick them in the National Library and keep them under his control. Now, there have been some, there've been some renegotiations and some reshaping of that. Some material was taken out afterward and, and deposited in the National Archives where it rightfully belongs. But in the main, he was able to exploit that distinction. It's a really problematic one um, because... And so many people do it as well. I mean, Churchill is famous for, for taking records 
of Britain's participation in World War II and saying, you know, I'm going to write the history of World War II because, you know, and I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm the one to do it. You approached the family, you approached his children, McMahon's children, and you didn't in any way gloss over what you were prepared to look for and what might be exposed and that there could be a degree of pain involved if they were to give you access. You were incredibly upfront about those risks. And I'm just wondering why you put it like that, why you were so open and upfront about how uncomfortable it would be for them if they were to grant you access. Why didn't you fudge it a bit? Look, I don't think it would have done me any good to say that I was going to write something that would be all sunshine and rainbows for them. Um, Yeah, I mean... Maybe not, but it just seemed to me there's a paragraph in the book where you you elaborate on all the different things that could happen and that you might dig up, and and it's terrifying in a way. I mean, I'm not surprised that they said no, whereas if you'd said, look, I'm going to look around in there and, and whatever I find, I'm going to run past you, and obviously, you know, I'll be asking you how you feel about this, that and the other, then it would have been a sort of softer approach that wouldn't perhaps have put them off quite so readily. Now, maybe that just means that you dealt with that up front rather than having a falling out with them halfway through. Yeah, that's, look, um, it might well be the case that I was naive. Um, You know, this was my first book. It's my first time really wrestling with with live subjects or a, a dead subject in this case. Um, and it was certainly true that there was a dimension to it that I hadn't really considered and that I was naive on. You know, one of the things I said to them, as, as you alluded, is that I said that I'd go through the papers and if I had criticisms to make, I'd come back to them and give them kind of an opportunity to respond. And it wasn't so much for them to be able to kind of go, you know, oh, I'm really hurt by that. It was more so an opportunity to say, well, look, have you actually thought about this argument or have you thought about this context? You know, I thought they actually would have at their fingertips all the information, that they would know all the facts. And so they would be able to respond to these arguments quite critically and, and kind of, you know, make sure that my arguments and the criticisms when I made them were going to be on the money, that they were going to stand up to scrutiny. But their response actually showed me that I was quite naive to think that because they weren't. The, the response from, from McMahon's daughter, Melinda, was, we're not the experts. If you've been through the papers, then how, how, what are we going to say? So there's definitely an element of naivety on my part to it. Naivety, but I think probably honesty. And I guess that that remark that you've just made there about Melinda and about the children, the three children's response is, it goes to the fact, doesn't it, that often children are not that interested in their parents' lives until they come into them, until you appear as a child. The fact that your father might have had this incredible career before you arrive is often of no consequence to children. Children are so absorbed only in their part of the narrative. So I guess it meant that they didn't know very much about their father professionally. I think that's right. I think I mean, the other thing about it is that you, as a child, you generally know your parents, you know, as parents. You don't really know them as a prime minister or as a politician. And, and really, you might think that that's just kind of beside the point. It's not the most important thing. And so there's a mention to their life that you don't think about. It's a completely understandable thing and completely typical. And it was kind of, as I say, naive of me not to think of that and consider it beforehand. I feel kind of an enormous sympathy for the children of politicians in general, you know, their parents get pilloried. And if they pay attention to it for a second, it just must be awful. Absolutely awful. Yeah. 
How did you decide how detailed and how forensic and granular your approach was going to be? You could have gone for broader brushstrokes, but we seem to be in on absolutely the micro detail of every decision, every exchange, the backstory to every policy. I mean, it's extraordinarily detailed. So at what point do you decide how how far you're going to zoom in? Good question again. With regards to McMahon's prime ministership, at least, I decided that I needed to at least zoom into the level of every single cabinet submission and every single issue that was coming across the papers. You know, because to do otherwise would be to simply not encounter the reality that McMahon was contending with, that McMahon was inhabiting. Um, I'm, ob- I'm younger. I wasn't alive when McMahon was prime minister. I wasn't alive when he was a minister. I wasn't even alive really when he was a backbencher or in retirement. So going through these papers and going through that and getting that detail was kind of necessary for me to be able to recreate it, for me also to understand it, and then also for me to be able to depict how McMahon was responding to it. There are a lot of biographies you can read where they will break down a subject's actions and and what they've done via theme. Like you'll go through, say, John Howard's biography and there'll be a chapter on national security and that's it, you know, in that one chapter. But of course, national security doesn't just pop up and consume one month to the exclusion of all else. There are hundreds and hundreds of matters that cross the desk every single day. And there are hundreds of people and there are hundreds of influences and factors that go into that. And I think if you can't understand and and acknowledge that detail and complexity, then you're missing the picture and you're missing the immensity of the job. These are demanding positions. Being prime minister is demanding. Being a politician is demanding. And grappling with detail is not only my job as, as the historian trying to tell this, but it's also their job. So to try and understand it, to try and see that experience um, was important and necessary. And it also goes, I think, as well to the point I made earlier about this kind of dark ages that supposedly ha- existed before Whitlam came along. By showing the detail and talking about what was there beforehand, I think it becomes easier to understand what McMahon and his colleagues were grappling with, but then also what Whitlam did and built on later on. How much were you influenced by the biography of Ronald Reagan, Dutch, by Edmund Morris, and by his statement that reality cannot be truthfully represented without honest distortions? I'm really curious about what that means. So there's no fictionalising in my book as there is in Dutch, um, which is quite famously a half-fictional autobiography of Ronald Reagan in which Edmund Morris imagines himself to be a contemporary of Ronald Reagan's and follows him around and so on, and which dovetails with reality um, and you know is otherwise then a straightforward orthodox biography. There's none of that in my book. What I was interested in and what I was responding to in, in Morris, though, is this idea of honest distortion. I don't mean that in a false sense. I mean in the sense of there's a difference between plot and story. This is, this is how I take the remark. There's a difference between plot and story. Story is the chronological course of events. One plus one, today, tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But then there's a how you represent those events and how you represent them in order and out of order. We do this all the time. You know, When I say to you, how was your day? You'll pick out one or two of things and say, it was a good day, I had coffee, da-da. You don't tell me I woke up. I had a shower, I had breakfast, I went to work, da-da-da-da-da-da. You don't do that because it's boring. The honest distortion that Morris recommends, he took to the utmost extreme by inserting this kind of fictionalised narrator. I didn't do that. The distortion that I put in here was namely in the Bowman interludes, this switch back and forth between 
an otherwise orthodox biographical narrative and these interludes where trying to write the autobiography reflected on that narrative and reflected on it in installments. There's a distortion in that because that's not how the life necessarily can be understood um, and it does interrupt that chronological flow. But there's also a kind of honesty to it, I think, as well, in the sense that our memories and what we understand about the past are always fragmented and they're always constructed. And understanding how those constructions um, are carried out is worthwhile and significant, in particular for McMahon, whose you know, appreciation and understanding of reality and what was true and what was false was flexible, might be the word, diplomatically to use. Yes, I think you used the term um, the slipperiness of fact at one stage, and I'm just wondering whether what you've just said, how that relates to another phrase that you've used, which is the persuasiveness of narrative. Is that what you mean in terms of the way we pick out certain details? We do this naturally. We're all naturally storytellers. We all edit and shape our own lives. Absolutely. And and the, the persuasiveness of narrative as well, in the sense that we construct an our lives and how we tell our lives according to certain narratives. Like McMahon always had this belief that he was, you know, a great prime minister, a really good prime minister, a top bloke, steady, mercurial and wise. And so he'd pick out the events that would reinforce that belief and things that ran contrary to that, moments where he had betrayed people or he'd lied or he'd done things reactively instead of proactively, you know, they were just forgotten. They were just off the table. And that narrative became persuasive to him. I mean, there's also a persuasiveness to the narratives that we tell. Um, it has suited a lot of people to retail the myth that Whitlam came along, won in a landslide, and remade Australia from the ground up, um, which, of course, didn't happen. There was a lot of stuff happening beforehand, however poorly understood. But the narrative has been really persuasive. It's been Whitlam, this giant of Australian politics. And he was a giant, but... You know, there were some midgets around as well, um, and we should know about the midgets. Extrapolate from McMahon's early family life when his mother was sick and the siblings uh, were all sent, the children were all sent to live with different people. And you say that this had a formative influence on his personality and it, it explains him being anxious and insecure and needfully ambitious. How far can you go with the psychologizing? You've definitely got to be really careful with it and, and I think cautious too. That, that, part of McMahon, the, the kind of anxiety caused by this absent family and the kind of the life in flux, really, not having the security of a constant mother and constant fatherly presence and, and love, really, a core kind of component of love. Um, that is an area, on one hand, that's really fraught, but on the other hand, is really well documented in politicians. I make reference to Lucille Iamonga's book, The Fiery Chariot, which is an, a biographical account of prime ministers in the UK. Um, I think it goes from the first British prime minister until the 1970s. I can't remember exactly the date where it cuts off. But it basically traced, looked at all of these guys biographically and their patterns of their lives, and it picked out these notable features that recurred in about one-third of them, where they had lost a parent at a very young age and they'd manifested the same qualities over and over again. I did something of a rudimentary kind of study of this in Australia, on quite a few of our prime ministers. And I was astonished to find, actually, that it's quite common. 
It's also the case over in the US as well. You know, Barack Obama is the most recent example of this kind of pattern. In Australia, um, Kevin Rudd is a really notable example of this pattern behaviour. So on one hand, um, I think I had quite a solid research base and, and a solid thinking about and, and scrutiny of this to put it forward. But yeah, you have to be really careful with it. Some of the psychobiographies that have, that have been put out about Australian politi- political leaders have just been absolutely slammed. Um, Stan Anson wrote one on Bob Hawke that was, you know, basically shot to pieces. But many of the arguments and ideas put forward in that book actually, I think, stand up pretty well. And it's also worth saying this is a kind of, you know, all biography is speculative. It's never definitive. History is always iterative. It's always building on it. So there's no problem, I think, with maybe saying, look, this is speculation. I think this is, I think this has currency. I think this works. Disagree with it if you like. I think that's a pretty, you know, good part. It's, it's, it's a part of the liveliness of biography. I love the fact that you mention some details that kind of give him more colour as a kind of eccentric in a way. When he was a young man, he was, for example, a balletomane. And I was struck by the fact that that was quite an unusual pursuit for a young man in those days. It wasn't just that he liked going to the ballet, and he may in fact have had a relationship, I think, with a ballet dancer, but he enjoyed dancing, presumably ballet dancing, himself. It was always very much this kind of... (sighs) urbane very urbane kind of man and and very kind of you know i'm trying to think of the right word to describe him but it's it's kind of eluding me at the moment this kind of society man who would be all about high culture and all about ballet and not afraid or or never thinking that there would be these kind of masculine or feminine kind of connotations to these it's worth saying for example that mcmahon boxed when he was at university and he was actually quite a, a good boxer so, you know, these kind of, the connotations of it, on one hand, are kind of interesting and a bit bizarre, too. Yeah. Also, another example, though, of eccentric behaviour, which is when he's in power, is at one stage, he's on a trip to Japan, and he has a massage, and he walks back to his hotel from the massage, wrapped only in a towel. He walks through the streets in Japan like that. What on earth is that about? I mean, that seems uh, exhibitionist. It seems like it could potentially be disrespectful and shocking to his hosts. What's going on there? I think Big Mum was always very proud of his body. It's a weird thing to say, but I think he always really was. The number of photographs of him in a swimming costume, usually cavorting on a beach somewhere or at a pool, are uh, innumerable. There's so many of them. Um, and it's worth saying he was a very fit man right throughout his life. So I think he was kind of quite happy to show off his body. But it also ties in, I think, with this willingness to show off his clothing, to show off his stature and his status, uh, and to surround himself with these kind of ideas and ideals of, of power and security. You know, I look good, I'm fit, I'm clothed well or not clothed well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of ties into that. Um, but it is it is a bizarre one. I think the, mo- the strangest one I think I found was I was told about his proclivity for using Nivea, rubbing into his skin at all hours of the day and night um, Nivea ointments, and they would make him so slippery that at one point Sonia said to him something akin to, oh, Bill, you've got to stop it. You're slipping away from me because he would always just slip through her fingers. (laughs) When it came to women in the workplace, he did not have progressive views, did he? No, no. Um, Despite later attempts to suggest that the government should move on removing the marriage bar, um, he was long against allowing married women to work in the public service. His government was also leading a case against 
um, I think, allowing women equal pay in the ILO at the time of the 1972 election, um, which was a case that Whitlam subsequently instructed the government to drop. He did not have very progressive views on women in that sense, no. He did have some surprisingly small L liberal views in other areas. Uh, he talked about homosexuality not as kind of being not as a disorder uh, and not as a medical condition, but as just something that was normal, you know, something to be ac- accepted. It wasn't a disease. Uh, he was also generally opposed to censorship, um, subject to political expediency, of course, has to be said with McMahon, <laughs> subject to political expediency. Uh, and he was against the death penalty as well. So there were some things about him that were progressive, um, and interestingly so. But on women, yeah, he was he was pretty retro. He he was loathed as much by people on his own side as he was by the opposition. Um, Menzies, for example, was so harsh about him, calling him, amongst other things, a contemptible little squirt. Is that because he was seen as being so treacherous, so willing to betray people on his own side to further his own ambition? And was it because he was also such a notorious leaker? Short answer, yes, absolutely. McMahon was regarded by so many of his colleagues and, and, and peers as just being the most venal, ambitious, manipulative, cunning little little prick, really. Is, yeah, that would not be out of line with what their regard for him was. One thing that I think, though, is interesting about him in this regard is that many of them took him as a lightweight and regarded him as a lightweight. So too did Labour as well. They all regarded him as a lightweight. But one of the things that this had, one of the effects that this had, was that it was a kind of constant inability to to peg him, to get him right, and to recognise that there were talents or qualities to McMahon that were also, you know, that existed in addition to those negative ones, that willingness to leak, for example. You know, McMahon's ability to persevere, his industriousness, his preparedness in cabinet debates, um, very few of his colleagues recognised those as being kind of things that made him formidable. And one of the surprises for me was when I was reading through this stuff and looking at it was that McMahon was fighting his corner in cabinet often and in spite of the antipathy of so many of his colleagues actually coming up with the goods, you know, he was winning. Um, it was a real, it's a bizarre thing to think that somebody so notoriously disliked could nonetheless fight his corner and hold it against combatants like Jack McEwen, whom other people were very, you know, completely unwilling to take on. So on one hand, McMahon's character was definitely flawed uh, and he was every bit the hated figure of, that his, that, of which you speak. But at the same time, there were other qualities and other talents and, and characteristics to him that made him much more formidable than people would like to think. You see this in, in, in this passage Paul Haslock wrote about McMahon after losing the deputy leadership ballot to him, where he realised that McMahon was a far more formidable figure than ever let on. Um, and I think the good comparison to it is with Widmacool from Anthony Powell's Dance and the Music of Time. You know, this guy of, subs- of, of just comic kind of figure, small man with padded shoulders and hearing aids, who nonetheless reveals himself to be a kind of more substantive, darker figure as, as the book, as it gets on. Um, and that's certainly the case for McMahon. You know, he went from sitting on two cushions, so he was at the right height at, at the cabinet table and saying, oh, Prime Minister, why must you always pick on me to Robert Menzies, to being Prime Minister, to getting to the top. Um, it's astonishing in so many ways. 
I liked the fact that as a minister, he had this habit of consulting with many different sources at many different levels. And that, to me, sounded quite thorough and quite commendable. So, for example, when he was the minister for uh, the army and the navy, he would talk to sh- midshipmen, wouldn't he? I mean, he would talk to the people who were on the ground Mm. Um, as well as the people who would high, who were high up, he didn't just consult with officers or senior bureaucrats. He solicited a lot of different points of view. Now, when he did that, did he listen to them all equally, and did he generally listen to advice when he was given advice? He definitely listened to advice when he was given it. One of the things about McMahon is that he relied extensively on his departments. So even though he was getting all this advice and intelligence and knowledge and stuff from industry contacts and people on the ground, he would almost always follow as well the advice of his departments. The kind of soundings that he took and the conversations he would have with people on the ground um, did often give him a bit of a read on things that was better than his departments. Um, His chief of staff told me, for example, about McMahon getting figures from Treasury on unemployment and putting them aside to ring an office, a Centrelink office effectively, on the south coast somewhere to get their figures individually for the month to figure out what was going on and kind of using that as a barometer. So there was an industriousness and a willingness to reach beyond official circles that is was useful to him in some ways. But I think it also went to one of these problems that McMahon increasingly came to encounter, particularly when he was prime minister, that all the information in the world, you know, having it all at your fingertips and reaching for more never actually helps you solve the problem. You still have to wrestle with the issue on the table in front of you. And there's an extent to which it breeds indecisiveness, particularly if you're trying to juggle multiple responsibilities and multiple issues at once. McMahon, when he was a minister, could focus on one issue and that would be fine. But as prime minister, that didn't really work. So useful, but also kind of a drawback as well. I want to talk to you about McMahon's legacy. And I was wondering whether you could pick out perhaps a couple of things where you think he's really been unfairly judged and not given the credit that he deserves. And then a couple of things where he really failed. And I would love it if you would perhaps touch on Vietnam, which I think is a really important thing that I didn't know about in terms of his efforts to try and get Australia out of there earlier. McMahon's probably most substantive contribution to Australian political life has to be his ability and willingness to take on the tariff line, effectively. Protection for Australian industry was this kind of fixture in Australia. We had this, this this is a debate that went right back to Federation, and it was the schism between um, the free traders in New South Wales and the protectionists in Victoria in particular. Um, And by the 1960s, that order was represented in Victoria by John McEwen, the country party leader who was just all about protection and retaining the tariff. McMahon, when he became treasurer in 1966, forced a debate on that. He was willing to question it. He was willing to take the knocks from McEwen and force McEwen to fight his corner in a way that nobody had been before then. Um, I think that's a, that was a substantive contribution and one that's never really been given the proper accord that it should Another that I think is interesting as well is um, a discussion of the government's performance in the 1972 election. Again, we talk about the persuasiveness of narrative. One of them is that Whitlam came to office in a landslide. Um, he didn't. He just didn't. 2,000 votes spread just the right way would have seen the coalition retain government and Whitlam's its time would have gone down as one of the most arrogant slogans um, ever to have been used by a political party. 
I think something of that victory is owed to the caution of the Australian electorate. I think another part of it, though, is also owed to the work done by the McMahon government in trying to respond and trying to address some of the changes that were going on in Australia. You know, one of the things that, that the McMahon government did, I could list them all, um, you know, they took Australia into the OECD, um, they signed the Five Powers Defence Arrangements, they selected a site for the High Court, they selected a site for Telstra Tower, they vastly increased education spending, they passed the Child Care Act, which gave the Commonwealth Government power to contribute funds to the construction of childcare centres in Australia and professionalise the teaching and staffing in those centres as well. Um, yeah, these, these are just some of the very small things they did. I think they did quite a lot of useful stuff, but it was small. It was really incremental kind of stuff. And it was often very responsive. You know, it was about putting out fires most of the time. But it was this attempt to grapple with the country that Australia was becoming um, and which would, which would flower under Whitlam in particular. Um, Vietnam, of course, is, is a real... It's a huge problem for, for McMahon when he became Prime Minister. Um, and he'd been bound up in it for nearly a decade by that point. When McMahon was Minister for Labour and National Service in, I think, 1964 it was, um, the decision was made to commit Australian troops to Vietnam. And McMahon had a seat at the table when that decision was made. And he argued in that debate that Australia should not do so on grounds that the American strategy in Vietnam was, you know, it wasn't clear. There wasn't an exit strategy, there weren't goals. And so he, he was one of two ministers to argue against that military commitment. Of course, after Menzies departed, Holt won an election on Australia's commitment to Vietnam. Um, but by the time of John Gorton, who was Holt's successor, Australia was beginning to withdraw its troops from Vietnam. And under McMahon, the last of the troops, um, last of the combat troops, came home from Vietnam in December 1971. There were still some troops left in Vietnam. They weren't combat troops. They were, I think, education and peacekeeping troops. Um, but Whitlam withdrew them as well almost immediately after he came to power and so claimed that narrative again that he had gotten Australia out of Vietnam. Um, it's not true. Um, really, McMahon was the one who ended Australia's military proper involvement there. So in some respects, I think those are kind of... Those are his achievements, small, diminutive though they might be. Um, his big failings are... Well, they're legion, I think, in many ways. Um, for me, one of the most grievous has to be his willingness... Uh, this goes back to the question of character. His willingness to lie and manipulate and embellish and leak left, right and centre. We just never had seen a politician like that in Australia. Um, I think we've seen a lot more of those kind of that kind of politician in the years since. But I think the introduction of that to Australian politics was unfortunate, to say the least. I think another one, and, and a really significant one too, is McMahon's failure to grasp the nettle in 1972. A campaign for acknowledging traditional association with the lands as basis for land rights claims by Indigenous Australians that had come onto the agenda in 1971, and McMahon was a vane on it. He went back and forward and back and forward until finally he landed on a position which he had announced, saying that the government wouldn't recognise traditional association with the land as a basis for land rights claims because, effectively, this is my words, effectively, the government didn't know what would happen. They didn't know what the results would be, so they weren't going to do it. He had this announced on 26 January 1972, the day that almost all Indigenous communities regard as a day of suffering, a day of mourning, invasion day. You know, the worst possible timing, timorous reasoning, turgidly expressed, just a, you know, a real failure, I think, in so many ways. 
and the response from Indigenous Australia was immediate. Indigenous activists got into the car that night, drove down from Sydney, and they were outside the lawns of Parliament House the next day with some beach umbrellas and picnic rugs, and they're still there today. Um, so that, that lingering legacy is still there. Another uh, disappointment to me, I have to say, on the international stage was his um, position on the controversial Springboks tour in 1971. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mick Mum was willing to allow the South African um, Springboks and cricket team to come to Australia, uh, and he pulled out all stops to try and help them continue the tour in Australia. He offered the use of the RAAF to ferry the players around, even though when airline staff imposed a ban. Um, you know, I think his failure again there was just, you know, cowardly, really, in so many ways. And it was conniving as well. It was a conniving kind of... There was talk of him holding an early election to take advantage of the supposed split in the electorate. And then, of course, at a time when everybody else was beginning to recognise China, being such a sort of fervent anti-communist from way back from his student days, that was something he would not do. Uh, McMahon's grappling with the China problem, so to speak, is just, it's just a litany of tragedies, one after the other. Um, McMahon had so many opportunities to turn it around, to, you know, face up to and, and grasp reality again but he just couldn't do it over and over again he couldn't do it he was cowed he was fearful he was seeking political advantage he was acting from expediency it was just all sorts of coward cravenly kind of behavior um terrible and of course comic as well because it just blew up in his face god knows what mcmahon would have made of our current standoff with china today Tiberius with a Telephone won the 2020 National Biography Award and makes a considerable contribution to Australian political biography, covering an era that was something of a black hole until now. It's hard to believe that this is Mullins' first book. It is so assured, so forensic, and so sound in its analysis. He gives McMahon credit where it's due, but does not spare him for his flaws and errors of judgment. I wonder if his children, who would not cooperate, have read it and how they feel about this portrait. Thank you for listening to Life Matters. We'd love you to leave us a review wherever you subscribe to this podcast. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions.